0: I want you to turn, if you would, to Romans 9. It should by now have a familiar place, a well-worn page or two in your Bible. And for the Scripture this morning, I'm simply going to read the very last verse, and then we're going to talk about Romans chapter 9. Behold... I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question Have you ever eavesdropped on a conversation? And the answer probably is yes. Let's say, for example, you're at the grocery store and someone ahead of you in line is having an earnest conversation with their teenage son or daughter. Though you didn't intend to, though you're innocent in your heart, you overheard what was said, and you have been given a gift. And the gift is this, that you have been presented with an open window into this mysterious thing we call a relationship between two people who are strangers to you. How many of you have been to a funeral? This is where you can all raise your hands, except for probably the young among us. Whenever I'm at a funeral, I'm struck by the photos, by the scrapbooks, by the testimonies, by the words of encouragement, by the tears, and I will try to find a way to uh, let the family know what a gift they have given to us because we have been given a window by which we can know the person who's in that box better and also can know and understand the family dynamic at play. It is a rare gift, and it's a literary device as well. Some of you may remember a little book probably 50 years ago, Letters to Philip. Some of you have read the novel Gilead. Both are constructed on the the premise that communication is being given to a specific person and you're not it, but you get to listen in. And so that becomes the the whole uh, context of the book. We also see it in Scripture. Have you ever read John 17? The conversational prayer between the eternal Son of God and his heavenly Father... And when we read that, it is impossible not to come away feeling like you have been privileged and been given a gift to see something about the relationship between the Son and the Father. Well, today, I am going to ask you all to eavesdrop on a conversation. Um, Oh, by the way, we see the same thing in Proverbs. See it in Ecclesiastes. It's a common biblical theme where we are given a window into a relationship through what would appear to be a private letter. Well, I'm going to call, uh, there was a a young man who after hearing Pastor Darrell's exposition of Romans 9 made an observation to his father that I heard about. And I'm going to ask you all to be eavesdroppers on my response to that question. The only caveat I was given was that I may may not use his name. And so this is going to be addressed to a young man I will call Charlie. And no, it's not Charlie Weinsma, (laughs) nor is it Charlie Karsten, nor is it any other Charlie in this room. It's a good name, by the way, but the person is real. The comment is real but the name has been changed to protect the guilty. Right? <laughs> now, what that means is that you all are going to listen in. And if it means dropping your pencil to do so, that's okay. So listen in as I set this up. In Romans chapter 9, there are some pretty hard things stated. Some pretty powerful Propositions, And they're not expressed anywhere, I don't believe, more forcefully than we see in Romans chapter 9. And right now, they should appear on, the, the first one of these should appear on the board. And I just distilled these down into three um, summaries. Verse 11. Though they, referring to Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. Next slide. Verse 15. For He, that is the Lord, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. Final one is in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? How it feels... Like, there is nothing short of thunder and lightning in these propositions, and it leaves us with a ton to process. Someone earlier this week suggested to me, why on earth, if you had a choice, why would you choose Romans chapter 9? Is there a harder chapter in the Bible? Well, the fact is, I chose it, as did Pastor Kip last week. So this will be the third time in probably six weeks that you've heard something from Romans chapter 9. And I will leave it to you to decide if it's in the category of great minds think alike or in the category of lemons follow one another over the cliffs into the sea. (laughs) But hearing these things isolated, without context, can make us pause and go, whoa, wait a minute. And we want to pause and pull out our not fair cards, right? But this young man that I'm calling Charlie, he did something really hard. He rolled up his theological sleeves and he tried to work out the implications of these verses, and that is no small things. And here is what he said to his father. Okay, Dad, I think I get it. Romans 9. I'm be Beginning to put the pieces together God is the boss and in fact if he sees a couple of ants crawling around the sidewalk and he decides to take his foot and squash one of them well that's his business it's his right I think I get it or if he were an older person who liked to use words a lot and didn't care how long it took to say something he might have said something like this Okay, Dad, the right-of-way upon which the sidewalk sits belongs to God, and he owns the Portland cement, and he owns the barge that hauled the crushed limestone up the Mississippi River to the furnace where it could be turned into cement, and he owns the water and the calcium chloride and the rebar, and he owns the sidewalk itself and the ground underneath it, and he owns the tunnels that the ants dig, and even he owns the programming that determines which way the ants will wander. So, of course, he can step on an ant, right? And frankly, we have neither art nor part in the matter. Now, the way he actually said the question was probably a lot more clear. But you get the idea, right? So I've concluded that a response from Scripture to Charlie's conclusions might be of some use to us more broadly And I'm aware that I'm privileged because I get to hold the floor for a while and respond to a young man without being interrupted. So first of all, Charlie, and from this point on, I will be referring to Charlie in the, what is that, the first person or the second person? You know what I'm saying, right? Charlie, I'm talking to you now. And we have several hundred people who are listening in, so don't be intimidated in the least. There are a number of really good things about your observation. It shows an engagement with the words of the Apostle Paul about a complex and profound proposition, one that will necessarily turn our understanding of the world in which we live upside down. It's also good that you took the time to articulate your observations, to articulate the implications, to care enough about the subject to put your observations into words. This is not a small thing, especially for a young person. About whom, by the way, if you ask them how their world... This is something for the gainer kids. I asked them years ago, when you come back from going around the world traveling, I expect to hear more than India was hot, right? <laughs> and they remembered that a year later, and they teased me back with, the same, with that observation, exactly. But, Charlie, you didn't do that. You took the time to put your thoughts into words. And it causes me to praise the Lord for you and the young and the seasoned among us who grapple with what God's word really actually says. And I'm reminded of, of uh, the autobiography of uh, pastor's life by Eugene Peterson called, I think, A Pastor's Life, a memoir. And in it, he takes a sentence to describe the people that he has shepherded for 30 years 30 years he shepherded these people and here's what he had to say about them. They are well educated and they know their Bibles. They are theologically grounded. It's just that they're just not all that interested. Wow. I'm not sure I could think of a more searing indictment But praise the Lord, Charlie, that you are not among that number. And your observation is actually and essentially true. The great creator God has the clear right to do as he likes with his creation, and we have no standing to claim otherwise. But, Charlie, you knew that the other shoe was going to drop, didn't you? And there are about eight things that I can think of about your conclusions and about your word picture and about your observations that are absolutely dead wrong. And you're not used to hearing that from a grown-up, are you? And we're going to take the time to walk through them one by one. And let's begin by taking a look at the troubling phrase, Jacob, have I loved, and Esau, have I hated. And turn, if you would to the book of Malachi. I wish I had remembered to tell you what page it is. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and turn back through the maps a little bit and you'll come to Malachi. Short book, three chapters. And we're going to talk about it a little bit. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Wow. At first glance, that seems like something from out of left field, doesn't it? It's not nice to hate people. How many times have we told our children and grandchildren that? plus, hey, such a strong word. Paul here in verses 11 to 13 refers to the Old Testament book of Malachi where the people of Israel post-captivity are positively incandescent in their contempt for their creator and the shepherd of their souls. And through the voice of the prophet, God levels an indictment against this people. And in it, the, The phrase, but you say, occurs multiple times. And it's part of the accusation of God. But you say, how have you, referring to God, how have you loved us? But you say, how have we polluted you? But you say, what a weariness is this? And you snort. But you say, for what reason have you not accepted our sacrifices? How have we robbed you? Listen to how the book begins in in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Well, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, it's worth noting that at this point in the post-exilic life of the nation, Edom, Esau, has migrated north and west from their land, east and south of the Dead Sea, into territory that had been previously Part of Judah. And like you and me, Charlie, the people of Israel are good at at least one thing, and that is that they can hold a grudge long past the point where any good is served by it, even against God. In fact, Charlie, one time I remember a conversation I had in the parking lot with a gentleman. It was on a winter's evening on a Sunday night and as we got into our respective cars he said what do you do when you find that you just simply cannot forgive God we may well wonder why Paul chose to quote this passage but the context suggests that he is underscoring the unique status of God's chosen people clearly the message for the people of Israel... This next sentence is really good, Charlie, so listen up. Write it down. The message for the people of Israel is that they, by faith, needed to view their circumstance through the lens of God's unfailing love and not to measure God's love by the congeniality of their circumstances. See me afterward. I can help you unravel that if we need to. So what does this have to do with our two ants crawling around the sidewalk? Plenty, actually. Let's concede, first of all, that there are some things that God hates. Things that incur his wrath. you looking to incur the wrath of God? I'll give you some tips. Try withholding the wages of the poor. Try abusing the widow and the orphan and the prisoner. Try undermining the sweet faith and innocence of a child. Try turning his house of prayer into a Ponzi scheme. Try taking the Lord's name in vain by using it to justify turning a blind eye to injustice. Try making a mockery and a lie of your marriage. Try rejecting and scorning the gift of salvation freely offered. Like John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not, what? Condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God is indeed capable of truly hating. But know this, that the God we worship is holy and just. And we're going to pause long enough to define holiness. I think it's something that we all know what it is. We certainly know it when we see it, right? But here's the definition. Holiness means set apart from all that is sinful and imperfect. The description of this this description of character is not merely the absence of any evil, but includes the fullness of all good. I like that definition because it suggests something that's really important. Theologians call it the simplicity of God. To define God's holiness requires the inclusion of his goodness his justice, his patience, his grace. We can't break down his attributes into little piles of which he is the sum total. Michael Horton, who I appreciate, puts it this way. None of God's attributes can be suspended, withdrawn, diminished, or altered, since his attributes are identical with his existence. He goes on to say, In the light of God's simplicity, we can never pit God's sovereignty against his love or his love against his sovereignty. And Charlie, I know we're in deep waters here on this one, so consider it a rabbit trail. Let's see what Scripture has to say about the holiness of God. Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. From Job, I'm sorry, Isaiah 18. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. And from Isaiah 30, which by the way, the Petros ABF is going to be diving into uh, this fall, just a shameless plug. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The holiness of God, the goodness of God, the patience of God, the very mercy of God demands that the justice of his character will triumph. For a holy God, hate may burn white hot, but it is never arbitrary. It is not rooted in casual preference or in a percolating but highly variable affection. Charlie, let me put it to you this way. He does not love Jacob more because Jacob says things that tickle his heavenly funny bone. We do God a great disservice when we ascribe to him motives that more properly lurk in our own selfishness and arbitrary hearts. And by the way uh, some translations substitute for the word hate the word prefer or love less. I shudder at the more softened words not because they seem suspiciously watered down but because the actual implications of that kind of metric are really scary to me. Why, Charlie? Because to prefer or to love less infers an arbitrary standard by which God picks winners and losers. May that never be. The love of God is neither rooted in our worthiness nor in some kind of inscrutable heavenly fondness. Rather, it's rooted in the holiness and the justice and the sovereignty of a great God of mercy. Second thing wrong with your, with your observation, Charlie. Let's take another look at your analogy for a moment, and that's all it should take. Newsflash, Charlie. We are not ants, and the difference is not measured in the size, relatively, nor in the fact that one of us has an exoskeleton and the other does not. The difference is rooted in the strange and divine creation that uniquely created men, not ants, in the image of God. The words that Jesus spoke in Matthew ten twenty nine may be helpful here, Charlie. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Now Charlie, it is true, of course, that throughout Scripture analogies are vividly portrayed between men and grass, men and the fading flower of the field, men and ships torn and tossed upon the seas, men and the birds of the air. Yet the analogy you pose presumes that just as you or I might step on an ant without realizing it, so it may be also with the creator of the universe, and therein lies a fatal flaw with your observation. Quite to the contrary, the God that we worship knows every intimate detail of the ants and has orchestrated even their circuitous paths. Remember, Charlie, that we are not what? Ants. Third thing, Scripture never demands that we pledge our allegiance to a God of caprice. You know what caprice means, Charlie? It means to given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. By the mercy of God, even his wrath is measured. His love and protection are liberally given, and he takes no joy in the death of the what? Of the wicked, right? Ezekiel 33 11 says it this way, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. And uh, this verse in Lamentations 3 really caused me to think. For the Lord will not cast off forever, But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of man. He knows the value of your aunts, Charlie, and has even pronounced them to be an important part of a created order that from the very beginning he pronounced as... Good. Four. This is an obvious one, actually. Charlie, the ants should be dead. You've chosen to make a word picture using live ants. Fatal flaw. Charlie, your analogy would be more true if the ants in your word picture were dead if instead of stepping on an ant, God reaches down and picks one up and heals and restores and breathes new life. Ephesians 2 like the rest of mankind. Fifth thing wrong with your analogy, Charlie. The God that we worship is not just a great big one of us. Have we heard that before? I borrowed that phrase from Pastor Worley some months ago. It just kind of piqued my imagination. The God that we worship is not just a great big one of us. It is so tempting to recast God on our terms. After all, We may never have pulled the wings off a butterfly, but we've all surely stepped on an ant, right? I think so. So our presumption is that just as the potter may remove the vase from the wheel and start over, God has a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to viewing his creation with little regard. Quite the contrary, God is the potter who knows and cares about his medium exquisitely. And in fact, the very earthiness of Scripture itself gives us clues about the value that our great creator places upon even the ants. God is not just a great big one of us. You might want to think about it this way. If we are clay upon the wheel and God notices that there's something flawed in the construction, say an air pocket, that would explode the thing when put into the kiln. What a mercy it is to reform, to remake, to remold according to the love and kindness and patience and knowledge and power and sovereignty of our great God. What a mercy that is. And this one here, Charlie, at number six, this is, uh, this is tricky. So I, I, I want to be really careful here. When we talk about God having the perfect right to squash an ant, that is, strictly speaking, a true statement. But we get no bonus points with God for proclaiming things about God that in normal context would be blasphemous. Here's what I mean. We, you and I, Charlie, we are the true anomalies of creation, people of flesh with hearts of flesh, yet we are immortal image bearers who mercifully, mercifully see through a glass darkly. I don't wonder that the angels scratch their heads at the strangeness of these human creatures that God seems to care so much about. There are times and places when we would do well to simply bow our heads and blink back tears at the mysteries of this life and certainly of the God in whom we are urged by Scripture to place our trust. I remember many years ago now, and this is long ago and far away, and nobody in my hearing was here, or at least is, is to be cloaked in guilt over this, but our youth group had decided to, to, as an exercise, hold a structured debate on whether and when babies go to heaven if they die. Does that make us cringe a bit? Why, well, I pray so. Can we agree that we have reason to be careful before we start pronouncing God's will for a sick or injured child? His ways are higher than ours, and we don't even have the words to express ourselves in earnest prayer. Charlie, I praise God this morning that though we cannot know what manner of pain or unfolding joy the future holds for you, we rejoice in this, that we know that according to his word, he cares for you, And that the Holy Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ pray for you even when our own words utterly fail. And Charlie, the day will probably come when your words fail. For number seven, I want to tackle really two things, but it boils down to just one. And it has to do with the topic of hypotheticals. We as elders have been taught to be a little bit skeptical of hypotheticals. We are on dangerous ground. You might say that those who live by hypotheticals often die by them as well. They are perilous because they're crafted usually to pose a moral dilemma for which there is no real resolution. Hypotheticals are dangerous because they may hide a patently false proposition behind a veil of empathetically fraught emotion. I'm going to give you an example. I'm reminded of the tired old story that surely some of you in this room have heard. The hypothetical of God being the the operator of a railroad drawbridge. And the passenger train is coming. And he has to lower the bridge in order for the train to pass. But he, at the last moment, sees his son playing among the gears of the great drawbridge. And he knows that if he lowers the drawbridge, the train will be saved but his son will die, and with much wringing of hands and weeping, he lowers the drawbridge. The train passes safely, and his son dies. Folks, I'm not even going to try to unpack everything that's wrong with that, because every single thing in that hypothetical is wrong. Right? So be careful of hypotheticals. Um, can we praise God this morning that we have a better resource? on hypotheticals, right? We have a better resource to draw from that has proven reliable, clear, coherent, internally consistent, and that still, 2,700 years after that little letter, that little book of Malachi was written, God's word can still pierce the heart and separate truth from almost truth. Finally, Charlie, number eight, and then we'll then I'll I'll proceed to my lengthy conclusion. I haven't heard the cards ruffle yet, so I think I'm in good shape. Charlie, never forget that we meet God on his terms, not ours. Michael Horton, again, speaks of our search for God as, quote, meeting a stranger. And what he means is that we will only know about God that which he reveals to us. We don't somehow elevate ourselves to peer out over the expanse of eternity from God's vantage point. Much as we would like to. Paul here in Romans 9 is proposing truths about God that will challenge us and crush us that we might look up and then lower our gaze, look at the sidewalk, and live. So, several conclusions this morning. The first one I've, it's in your bulletin actually, I think, Lay down our arms. One of the hard things about this chapter is that when we embrace these propositions, we give up a lot. We really do, because if God owns it all, then guess what? We don't, right? If God is in charge of everything, then guess who's not in charge? Us, right? If God chooses according to the wisdom and the goodness of his will, then our efforts at righteousness Will fail every single time. And this is important because if it is God's mercy that we are counting on, that also means that our rest may be real and that we may indeed run with undiluted joy and thanksgiving that is real. There's at least two other things that we give up in the consideration of these things. The first is we give up our pride and our autonomy. The second is something that the people Malachi was speaking to needed to hear. We must necessarily, please hear me on this, people. We have to necessarily give up our grudges against the God who made us. Have you ever shaken your fist at God, Charlie? The day may come when you'll be tempted. For a number in this room, the question, how have you loved us Echoes in the not fair canyons of our minds just like it did for the bitter and angry people of a reconstituted Israel 2700 years ago and that is my first and main takeaway this morning the second comes from verse 8 in chapter 9 where the little phrase children of promise is used it's extended not on the basis of pedigree Or tribal affiliation. It depends not on how long you have labored in the orchard. It depends on one thing. The mercy of God. Verse 11 states it so very succinctly. The mercy of God is extended not on the basis of works, but because of him who calls. What this means is that the mercy of God is expansive and vast and welcomes even the most unlikely sinner to draw near and be a guest. But that doesn't really capture it because it to draw near and be more than a guest, to be a member of the family, a member of the family of God. And I'm reminded of the message I heard on the radio recently of the thief on the cross who uh, gets to the gates of heaven the same day on which he was crucified. And they say... Um, You need to present your credentials. We need your driver's license. We need your social security number. We need your PIN number. We need your password. And uh, he says, I I don't have any of that stuff. He says, all I know is that the guy to my right, um, who died on the cross with me, said I could come. Indeed. Indeed. Finally, be not put to shame. Chapter 9 finishes with what amounts to a hymn of praise in verse 25, quoting from Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. This is interesting. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Charlie, when it comes right down to it, I don't have any particular word for your aunts in this word, your word picture, but I have a word for sinners, like you and me, like you, especially. Charlie? (laughs) Um, God's mercy is as real as his holiness and is as powerful as his justice. Charlie, you might find this hard to believe but there are a great many people and some of them in this room who do not know what it feels like to be part of a family or to know the security of having a place at the dinner table that will always be there for them. They surely do not know what it feels like to be beloved in any meaningful sense. They know what it is to feel shame and in fact for some of them it will feel as though that is the only thing they have ever known. It is to them, Charlie, that the mercy of God speaks the sweetest. For the one who by the gift of faith hears the good news and repents and believes, who surrenders to the only Savior this world has ever known, he or she will have been known forever as sons and daughters of the living God. And a postscript, if I may. The last verse in the chapter tells us that the greatest stumbling block to saving faith in Jesus is strangely not his judgment, not his overwhelming sovereignty, but his mercy and tender, patient love that blows the doors off the hinges of our precious pride. 33 says... As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. By that mercy found in the gift of faith, we may be sure that we will never be put to shame. Charlie, if you're like me, the verses that I'm about to read next will always be whispering to you, even as you're inspecting the sidewalk beneath your feet, And I'm going to do, I'm going to take a little risk here and I'm going to begin reading a Bible verse that I am pretty sure most everybody in this room knows and you're going to say it with me. And then I'm going to ask you a question. For God so loved that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now it gets harder. Who knows the next verse? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And who knows the next verse? I said it earlier, so this should give you a little clue. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And now, Charlie, just one more sentence for you. One more word. And then you can breathe a sigh of relief. Charlie, you are greatly loved in the courts of... You are greatly loved in the courts of heaven. And also here on the battleground of this good earth. And now, let's... uh, together, participate in communion after I pray for us. Father, thank you that you are simple. And we are not. Our kindness often comes at the expense of our discernment and our wrath burns in a capricious and arbitrary way. But your mercy is firmly rooted in your sovereignty and in your righteousness And in your integrity. And you are indeed our rock. Of ages. Amen.